Let's pray again together as we approach this passage of Scripture. Almighty God, as we approach you in prayer to consider a passage that we are going to, where we're going to consider prayer and and what prayer is, and, and more than that, far more than that, who we are praying to. Lord, we pray that you would be that you would help us to be faithful prayers. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would hear our prayers for the glory of your name. We pray that, that you would help us, Lord, to understand our need and understand that the, the, the place where we need to go for our needs is you. That we are reliant on you for everything. Lord, help us, I ask, for the glory of your name to pray faithfully to you, faithful God. We ask this in the strong name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I ask you, please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we consider our passage for this morning. We're continuing our series in the book of Luke, and this morning we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 18, 1 to 8. Luke 18, 1 to 8. And he told them a parable to the fact that they are always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of our Lord. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts this morning. Please be seated. Martin Lloyd-Jones declared, prayer is beyond question the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face with God. And therefore, it is at the same time the ultimate test of a man's true spiritual condition. A man discovers the real condition of his spiritual life when he examines himself in private, when he's alone with God. Similarly, what John Owen said of ministers is true of us all. What are we on our knees, what we are on our knees in secret before God Almighty, that we are and no more. I hope you would agree that that prayer is the highest activity that you can engage in. But what does your prayer life say about you? What does it say about your faith? What does it say about your perspective of who God is? How's your prayer life? It's a question that'll make most of us feel guilty most of the time. Well, remember, if you, if you remember during our series on the Lord's Prayer from Matthew 6, 5 to 15, a few years ago, we, we learned that the Jesus, when he, when he taught what's called the, the Lord's Prayer, is, was not, he was not teaching a, a rote prayer, but he's teaching a pattern prayer or, or an outline for prayer for us to follow. 
And the preparation of that, for that series, I conducted an online survey of the church, of the congregation about prayer. And one of the key questions in that survey was asking whether people felt they needed to grow in their prayer life. And almost every single person in the church, almost every single one, acknowledged that they needed to grow in prayer. Almost everyone acknowledged some difficulty with prayer. Why is that? Why is it that so many people struggle at times to pray? Well, in the introduction of that series, and I, w- I would commend that to you, in the introduction of the series, I, I listed several reasons why people don't pray, including misplaced priorities, besetting sin, And my main motivation for the series was the fact that people don't pray because they don't know how to pray. Because very few people have ever actually been discipled in prayer and taught what it means to pray and how to pray. And so I introduced this series as an introduction in order to help people to learn how to pray according to Scripture, to let Scripture provide the guidance for your prayer. And this model prayer or pattern prayer is a perfect example of that, in a way you can pray through the partitions and may, let that guide your, your thinking as you pray. But there's another reason why people have a hard time praying often. A reason that I didn't list directly, but it's, but it's a reason that Jesus addresses in our passage this morning. Prayer can be hard work. Prayer can be hard work. It's, it, think about it when, I don't know about you, but if I have, have two jobs that I have to do and, and one is easy and the other one is more challenging, I'm gonna, in my flesh, I'm gonna tend to wanna do the easy job and put off the more difficult job or ignore the diff, more difficult job. And, and you can see as a, as a very amateur handyman, that's true around the house with the things that I've, I've gotten done, the things that I can do and, and things that I haven't gotten done are things that that I'm not confident in doing. And prayer is like that even a lot of the time, isn't it? That, that we, we feel wearied by prayer. It's, it's, it's discouraging to us because we feel our prayers don't measure up and, and we pray for the same things over and over and over again and, and we've, we've not received the response we wanted. We've not received the answer to that prayer and so we, we grow weary and we even at times give up in praying for these things. I'm sure I'm not the only one who struggles with this. Is prayer hard for you? Do you grow weary in prayer? Well, we are living in challenging times. And frankly, I've been battling discouragement. Now, discouragement isn't really typical for me. Jane will, will tell you that and I'm an optimist and, and, and I've not really wanted to, to own that label, but, but I think she's right. The Oxford Dictionary defines an optimist as a person who tends to be hopeful and confident about the future or the success of something. And as a philosophy, it describes a person who believes that this world is the best of all possible worlds or that good must ultimately prevail over evil. This is a a philosophy that was was really uh, encapsulated and crystallized uh, by by German Christian philosopher um, Leibniz. and, And he was... He was known as a philosophical optimist. And I think I'm generally a philosophical optimist. I usually try to, to focus on, 
on what's going right. But at the moment, it just seems like there's so much going wrong. And there, there are fewer things that are going right for me to focus on. Our community is, is inundated, has been inundated for the past month with, with fires burning all around us. But even worse, many homes have been destroyed. And, and many homes are, many more homes are in danger. We're being bombarded with news about COVID-19 and, and the vaccine effectiveness and, and, and vaccine dangers. But even worse, Many churches have been split over differing perspectives on how to respond to COVID. It's very grievous to me. It breaks my heart. Immorality is being celebrated by our culture, but even worse, local churches are being targeted. And add all of this to the the ongoing battles with sin, that we face in the church. Now there are victories. There are glorious victories when I, I see people walking in repentance and faith. You know who you are. But lately it's been harder for me to see. And I tell you this because I know that I'm not alone. I tell you this because I know I'm not, I'm not the only one that is struggling with discouragement, that, that is battling discouragement. But you know what? That's actually one of the things that makes me thankful. That's one of the things that comforts me in the middle of discouragement. It's you. It's you because we're in this together. It's, it's not that I'm, I'm, I'm happy that, that others are feeling discouraged. It's, it's I, I wish you weren't. I pray you aren't. But the fact that we're together in this, the fact that we're, t- we're together in the fight is an encouragement to my heart. Now, as a pastor, I have, have one of the, 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 the greatest privileges out there of being able to, to study the Word of God and to, to be able to proclaim the Word of God on Sundays and, and to spend my week talking to others about the Word of God. Now, all of us get, get to do that to a degree, but, but I get paid for it. It's almost criminal. And, and I have found great comfort and great hope in studying this passage. In fact, Jane will, t- will tell you that I, I, was, I was different. My heart was different when I came home from my study yesterday evening than it was when I started the day. And even as I began the day, I was already being encouraged by my own prayer and, and by what, what Luke um, shared with us from in the men's prayer meeting. But it's the word of God that brought comfort. And the word of God, I trust, will be a comfort to your heart today. That's been my, my earnest prayer for all of us as a church family, that we would draw comfort as we study this passage, Luke 18, 1 to 8 today. You're here because you love this church family. You're because you're you're committed to its unity and its purity. 
But we still battle with discouragement. This is a fallen world where we're going to face trials and tribulations. We're going to face trials and tribulations all the way until the Lord returns or takes us home. But brothers and sisters, Jesus has help for you and me in the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18, 1 to 8. There's very real, very practical, tangible help in this passage for strugglers like you and me. In verse 1, Jesus tells us why Jesus told the disciples this parable. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. The meaning is, is right there. As 19th century commentator William Van Doren says, the author is his own interpreter. The key hangs at the door. Now, some parables are more challenging to interpret. But this one's easy because, because right here in verse 1, Luke tells us the meaning. And then later on, Jesus tells us the application. It's very clear. The message can be summed up like this. If the widow's persistent pleading for justice causes the unrighteous judge to help her, how much more will the prayers of the saints be answered by the righteous God? The key's right there. You just need to turn the lock, open the door, and walk right in and receive these blessings. Jesus here is arguing from the lesser to the greater. Jesus is saying that if, if the widow's persistence convinces an uncaring judge to help her, certainly we can go to the faithful God faithfully in prayer, confident that he will help us. Now, Jesus isn't saying here that when he says when he says that we ought always to pray, he's, he's not saying that we need to be constantly praying. You know, all the time walking around on our knees with our heads bowed. Rather, he's saying that we should be devoted to prayer. That, that our lives should be centered around prayer. That we should be in the, the regular habit of prayer as a habit of grace. Jesus is here encouraging us to pray and to draw encouragement from prayer. Jesus is encouraging us to to diligently seek for what we need from God and to keep on seeking it, even if the answer to us seems delayed. We give up too easily. Remember, when, when we pray, we're, we're not praying to, to a miser from whom we, we must pry the blessing out of his, his tightly clenched fist. No, we're praying to our Heavenly Father who is eager to answer our prayers. You know that God is more eager to bless you even than you are eager to be blessed. He's the one we go to in prayer. And we need to understand that, that when, when God doesn't answer prayer right away, it's or in the way we want, it's, it's, it's always for good reason. Either the thing that we are praying for is not best for, for us for now, or it's not best at all. 
Sometimes it's a matter of timing. So sometimes unanswered prayers is, is God is, is, understands that, that we are not ready to receive the answer to that prayer. Or that God wants to, to sanctify us in the waiting for the answer. Especially because he wants us to, to press into him in prayer. Sometimes it's, it's a matter of, of learning to want the things that God wants and, and to, to pray that, to pray to God that, that he will, will give us his desires for the things that we really, really need. So part of, of, of prayer is, is, remember, is to pray your will be done. That if God's withholding something, he knows that it's not going to benefit you, at least not now. So you're praying your will be done. It's submitting your will to God and trusting the timing and the outcome to him. Now, throughout the Bible, we are, we're exhorted to faithful prayer. Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, similar. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, as an aside, I said last week that, that Luke 17, 32, remember Lot's wife. And the Bible is the, the second shortest verse in the Bible. I was actually wrong. First Thessalonians 5, 16 and 17 are both shorter. They're shorter even than, than John eleven thirty five, where we read Jesus wept. That's three Greek words. These are only two each. The two shortest verses in the Bible, right there, right next to each other, to pray, to rejoice. That's going to score you a few points in Bible trivia. But this section here in Luke 18, 1-8 is, is tied closely to what you've just heard about the kingdom of Christ, about the return of Christ, about his, the, the consummation, about the, the crowning of the king. From Luke 17, 20-37. God's kingdom came, and God's kingdom will come. Until then, we must be faithful in prayer. Until the return of the king, we must continue praying, your kingdom come. Luke 17.20 performs an inclusio with Luke 18.8. The, the context here, verse 8, shows that, that the ultimate request is for God's justice in the son, to be granted in the Son of Man's return. Back in 17.20, the, the Pharisees asked Jesus when the word of God would, or rather when the kingdom of God would come. And then in 18.18, Jesus says that when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Shows that this, this whole package from, from Luke 17.20 to Luke 18.8 go together. They belong together. The motivation to prayer is the suffering of the saints as they await the return of the Lord. Luke 21, 36 is similar. In light of coming judgment, Jesus exhorts us, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. But the temptation for us is to give up on prayer. In the face of suffering, as we await the consummation of the kingdom, now this, this suffering, what we're seeing going on around us, the things that we prayed for earlier in the service, if they, they might seem unique 
in our day. But if you know anything about church history, if you know anything about the background of what was taking place as as these, these scriptures were being written and what happened to the apostles, even what's recorded there for us in scripture. If you know anything about these things, you realize that that is not new. Christians have been waiting for 2,000 years for the return of the Lord. And so in the face of, of trials, of the, the, the delay of the kingdom's consummation, don't give up on praying. Don't give up on praying for justice, especially for the justice that will be revealed at the Lord's return. Well, now in verses two to five, Jesus tells us the parable. He begins by telling us about a judge. Now, the judge is the, the villain in the parable. He doesn't fear God or respect man. The, the King James repeatedly warns against being a respecter of persons that that a judge should not be, should not be, should not be partial. We shouldn't show partiality. So don't be a respecter of persons. You don't want partiality in a judge. But this isn't that. This simply means that, that this judge doesn't care about people. The only person he cares about is himself. You definitely don't want that in a judge. You want a judge who's going to consider the, the human component in deciding a case. You want a judge to be able to consider the plaintiff and to consider the, the defendant in rendering a just verdict. But the other aspect of the judge's character is actually far, far worse. He has no fear of God. Psalms 2.11 directly warns the judges of the earth to serve the Lord with fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A judge who does not fear God and does not care about people is going to do whatever he wants to do. His, his judgments are going to be completely subjective based on his whims and his personal biases. How could such a judge ever expect to render a correct verdict? Would that God would raise up judges in this country, especially Supreme Court judges who fear the Lord and care about people. Well, next, Jesus introduces us to widow. And in a sense, the widow is the, the hero or the heroine of the story. But remember, in that culture, widows were outcasts. They were often on the, on the outside looking in, ignored left to fend for themselves. Now remember, we, we've seen throughout Luke's gospel account that, that outcasts figure prominently. We were seeing it this morning and, and we're going to see it prominently in the next several passages as tax collectors and, and children and, and beggars are presented as examples of faith on the one hand, while Pharisees and the rich young ruler are examples of faithlessness. So this widow, this, this outcast, was vulnerable. She was helpless. Some injustice has been committed against her. It's, it's probably a financial issue. Now, she's in the right. right? She's, she's, she's not done the wrong thing. She's simply looking for justice. But the judge refuses her. 
Again and again and again, he refuses her. She has no one to advocate for her. There's, there's no kinsman to bring her case to court. But she doesn't just roll over. She's persistent. She repeatedly goes to the judge saying, give me justice against my adversary. Now the focus shifts back to the judge. For a while, he's refused. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us specifically why he refused, but his character is reason enough. He didn't fear God, and he doesn't care about her. And he doesn't care about anyone but himself. But as we'll see in a moment, it's his care for himself that actually motivates his change of mind. He could handle her coming once, twice, three times, but she kept on coming. It's like she's never going to stop. So finally he says to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down with her continual coming. Notice he reinforces his character. He's acknowledging that he doesn't fear God and that he doesn't care about people. This widow's bothering him. She's annoying him. Again, like I said to the kids, there's, there's a reason why kids whine, because it works. Parents, your, your children are trying to annoy you into giving, that, into giving them what they want. So the judge decides to give her justice. You know, he even recognized, he said, okay, I'm going to give her justice. He even recognizes that what he was doing was unjust in not helping her. So he decides to help her, not at all because of the justice of it, but just because he wants her, wants her to leave him alone. Now the ESV translates it well here. It says, so that she won't beat me down with her continual coming. This is a, this is a good translation. Most English tra- versions have something like, she will wear me out. But the word literally means to beat under the eye. And he's not worried that she's going to wallop him with her purse but that she's going to beat him down. Again, it's, it's, this is the reason, that this is what something that the children do, that they're really good at beating their parents down with constant pressure. I remember very well trying to beat down my parents. I'm, I'm sure I whined. I really wanted a Batman action figure. I was about eight years old. Now, it wasn't close to my birthday. It wasn't close to Christmas. I didn't have any pocket money, so I pestered my parents, and I pestered them, and I pestered them in order to, to try to get this Batman action figure. But thankfully, my parents had more resolve than this judge. Never did get that Batman action figure. I should go and buy one. I have money now. But again, this, this, this widow here, she's not asking for a toy. Right? Well, she's looking for justice. She's only seeking what's right. Now in verses 6, six to 8, Jesus explains the meaning of the parable. In verse 6, he brings us back to the judge's statement and to his character. Again, the judge didn't fear God or care about anyone, let alone the widow. Jesus tells us that he was an unrighteous judge. He was an unjust judge. It should be an oxymoron. Yet even still, he acquiesced, albeit begrudgingly, to the widow's persistent pleas. Now in verse 7, Jesus argues again from the lesser to the greater. 
If an unjust judge will give justice to the persistent widow, how much more will God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? If an unrighteous judge will help the widow, how much more will the supremely righteous judge of all the earth help his chosen children who call out to him in prayer? At the end of verse 7, Jesus asks the question, will he delay long over them? Will God wait long to answer the prayer of his suffering saints? Will he be slow to help them? Well, Jesus gives us the answer at the beginning of verse 8. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. If the wicked judge will do the right thing, even though his motives are selfish, how much more will the righteous judge of all the earth, who is motivated by his glory and the good of the elect, do what's right? When Abraham intercedes for Sodom, he asks, shall the judge of all the earth do what is just? Of course he will. Of course he will. Notice it is the elect who are praying. And notice it's the elect who God hears. Now prayer, prayer is something that the elect do. Again, as we talked about at the beginning, they didn't have to do it perfectly, but, but the elect pray. Well, what is election? Maybe we just need to look at this for a minute. What is election? From a statement of faith, we believe that election is the eternal act of God's sovereign grace by which he chooses, calls, justifies, and glorifies sinners. That's what election is. So then, who are the elect? Well, according to the 1689 London Baptist Confession, 11.6, which is on justification, God did from all eternity decree to justify the elect, and Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. So who are the elect? Brothers and sisters, that is you and me. We are the elect by God's sovereign grace. So call out to God, cry out to God in prayer, in confident prayer that he will hear you. God will hear you. Future brothers and sisters, those who are not yet Christians, that's you too. But the first prayer you need to make is the one that we're going to discuss in next week's passage. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God will answer that prayer too. And every subsequent prayer. Lamentations 3, 22 to 26 declares, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Even if it seems to be delayed in its coming. Now, one thing I need to, to warn you about, though, in prayer is not to be legalistic about prayer. As though through prayer, you could somehow earn your way to God. Those who come to God must come to him in faith 
through Jesus Christ. The only way to the Father is through the Son. Never think that God helps you because of your prayers. God helps you because of Christ. God helps you because of Christ. I think when we think about prayer, there's there's really, there's two there's two illustrations that are often used to describe prayer. And I think if you only have one of them, you're going to get an imbalance for your prayer. You really need to have both. You probably heard it said that, that prayer is the slender nerve that moves the mighty hand of omnipotence. That's true. That's true, that, that when we pray, God has decreed that we would pray and that God has, has decreed that he would work in response to our prayer. So there's a sense in which, yes, God does answer our God does answer prayer in response to our prayers, the prayers of the saints. That's half the story. The other half of the story is that, is that if you are in a boat and, and you want to get to land and you, you throw a boat hook to the shore, you start pulling on the rope, you don't move the land to you, you move the boat to the shore. Understand? So that, that prayer changes you. That, that when you pray to God, you're being changed as you pray. Again, you need both. That, that prayer is decreed that, that you would pray and that you would work in response to your prayer. And God has also decreed that he would change you as you pray. So your will is, 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 is more brought into line with his will. And your character is made more like Christ. But again, God doesn't, God doesn't answer your prayers because of your prayers. He answers you and helps you because of Christ. God answers your prayers and, and God helps you because Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are interceding for you. Romans 8, 27, 26 and 27 and 34. God does not hear your prayers because of your righteousness. He hears your prayers because of the righteousness of his Son. In Christ, God is your Father. And He cares for you. He cares for you intimately. Remember the, the first, the, the, the address of the, of the model prayer, the, the, the pattern prayer. Our Father in heaven. God is our Father in heaven. God is your Father in heaven. He sees all. He knows what you need even before you pray. And He's overall. He's able to give you everything that you need. So pray earnestly. Pray continually. Pray confidently. Pray as though your life depends on it. Pray, pray as though you, you need to pray. Because you do. But pray again, pray confidently, pray faithfully. And as you pray, pray with faith, trusting that the Lord will give you everything that you need when you need it. Fellow Christians, if God delays in answering your prayers, it's for good reason. Again, it's either not for your, not the best timing or the thing is not for your best at all. Quite often, you'll find, I do, when, when I'm praying and praying and I, I press into God and you know, some among us who are really struggling but are, are pressing into God, 
simple, they're not ornate prayers. They're just praying, help me, Lord. These people are blessed with an intimacy with God that many others don't get to experience. Even if it feels like the Lord is delaying in his response to you, he isn't. God is not delaying. God's timing is perfect. Consider 2 Peter 3, 8, 9. But not, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The context here is the, the day of the Lord. The context here is, is the enthronement of Christ when God's kingdom is going to be fully consummated. And that's the context of Luke 18.8 as well. Jesus is exhorting us to patience in prayer in the face of an apparently delayed response. But remember, just as the, the kingdom is not yet, our vindication is already not yet. We've been truly in the last days for 2,000 years. But your vindication means spiritual blessing. And spiritual deliverance now as, as well as full blessing and full deliverance upon the return of Christ. God is providing for you now and will provide for you all the way to the return of Christ, even if he takes you home first. So finally, Jesus asked the question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Remember back in chapter 17, verse 20, the Pharisees asked when the kingdom would come. And then later on, the disciples asked where the kingdom would come. And now Jesus is, is talking about, about us, talking about our response to him and to his kingdom. God will give justice speedily according to his perfect timing. Especially at his return, which is also according to God's perfect timing. But will there be many faithful left when he comes? Again, you see the connection here. The direct connection with what we heard in the previous section about the return of Christ and the consummation of his kingdom. Will people be found doing this? Will people be found faithfully praying at his return? Well, yes. The implicit answer is, but not very many. It's always a remnant. It's always a remnant. There'll be very few who are actually walking in faith. Faith isn't just an, an abstract agreement to a set of theological propositions. Faith is, is a, a real living and trusting relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a looking for, it's a, a longing for his return. That's what faith is. But delay can lead for some to a loss of faith. So Jesus is, is essentially saying here, I will come, pray, and look for my return. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says, but, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. 
The kingdom came and the kingdom will come. So keep praying, come Lord Jesus. Again, return to the question that I asked earlier. earlier. How is your prayer life? Are you faithful in prayer? Consider what you're facing at the moment. What are you praying for that God hasn't answered yet? Have you grown weary in prayer? Again, this is ultimately a reminder to keep on praying. Your kingdom come, Matthew 16, 10, and to pray, come Lord Jesus, Revelation 22, 20. But in the meanwhile, as you await the Lord's return, what else have you grown weary of praying for? Have you grown weary in praying to, to overcome that besetting sin? You, have you grown weary in, in praying for the health and protection of your family? Have you grown weary in praying for the growth and the sanctification of the church? Have you grown weary in praying for God's justice? And I think in light of, of this passage, I think perhaps that one that is, is particularly in view here. Because remember, this, this widow has been praying for justice and the, the unjust judge gives her justice, but, but God is going to give justice. He's going to vindicate his elect. Maybe you've been wronged by somebody. Maybe they've actually really, really done what's wrong. And they're not even acknowledge it. They don't even seem to care about it. But you see them prospering. Now, I don't know about you, but I am very sensitive to perceived injustice, especially when it's inflicted on me. And I know the temptation to try to become the judge and the jury and the executioner as well. That's what unforgiveness is. It's, it's taking the matter out of the hands of the just judge and making ourselves, who are so often unjust, making ourselves the just, the judge rather, the, the unjust judge. Unforgiveness is, is really carrying out a death sentence against somebody else in your own heart. And that bitterness will grow and will defile you and will defile the church, Hebrews 12, 15. But instead, trust the righteous judge. He is sovereign. He is loving. He is wise. Leave it to him. Whatever that person or that group did to you, leave it to God. God will deal with it in his perfect timing. Don't judge the story by the middle. Time and truth go hand in hand. Justice will come. It may come at Christ's return or it may come sooner, but it will come. You can trust God with your deepest hurts. Has somebody wronged you? Take it to the Lord. Take it to the just judge. Don't take it to another person so that you defile them with your bitterness. Take it to the Lord. And with that, then I wonder, who have you given up praying for? Have you given up praying for the, the salvation of your family, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers? Have you given up praying for your enemies? Do not grow weary in prayer, even for them. The church father Augustine wrote 
that this avenging of the righteous then must be, we must understand to be that the wicked may perish. They may perish in two ways, either by conversion to righteousness or by punishment having lost the opportunity for salvation. See what he's saying there? That we can, we can pray by, by ingesting, it's, this here is speaking about, about unbelievers, un, that, the, that unbelievers, we can trust them to God's justice, that he will either punish their sin on their own heads or he'll punish them in Christ. As the Lord committed himself to the just judge, so must we. But it's true even for believers who wrong us. Because we can trust that, that, the, that Jesus Christ is the author and perfecter of their faith, even as he is of ours. We are not the Holy Spirit. We cannot make somebody repent. We can entrust people, even Christians who have, have harmed us or wronged us in some way, we can entrust them to God as well. Similarly, when, when Abraham Lincoln delivered a speech at the height of the American Civil War, I've uh, talked about this earlier, he he spoke of those in the South as, as fellow human beings who were in error. And he was chastised by an, an elderly woman who was really staunchly for the, the Union. He was chastised her because he, he did not see them as irreconcilable enemies who must be destroyed. But Lincoln is, is said to have replied, Why, madam, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Pray for those who, for whatever reason, have made themselves your enemies. Or pray for those who have, have wronged you in any way and trust them to the sovereign Lord, to the just judge. Don't grow weary in praying even for them. But sometimes we pray without praying. Sometimes we pray prayerless prayers. We're, we're just going through the motions. We aren't really engaged in prayer. It's another sign of weariness in prayer. We're, we're just talking to the ceiling. Other times we pray faithless prayers. We, we pray because we know we have to, but we don't really believe that God is going to answer us because we've waited so long for the answer. Can you think of times and things that, that you prayed for maybe even for years? the Lord didn't answer for a very long time and then suddenly when that answer came you rejoice and you praise God and, and you even praise God for his, his omniscience and the fact that he knew that he was going to answer that prayer in a way that was way better than any way than you could ever even have imagined God doesn't delay it might appear that way to us, but God's timing is always perfect. Again from Augustine. When faith fails, prayer dies. In order to pray, then we must have faith. And that our faith fail not, we must pray. Faith pours forth prayer. And the pouring forth of the, of the heart in prayer gives steadfastness of faith. They both feed each other and cause, they cause both to grow. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to, to bear. 
What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for prayer. Lord, that through the death of your son, we have been adopted as sons and daughters. As his death was imputed to us, and as our sin was imputed to him, as his righteousness, all of his obedience was credited to our account and as in him we have been granted the righteousness of God. And so we pray to you in the righteousness of Christ, confident that you will hear us. Help us, I pray, to be a praying people. Help us to remember who we go to in prayer. Help us to run to you in prayer and to linger long with you in prayer. Help us, Lord, to delight in intimate fellowship with you in prayer. That our faith might grow and that Christ would be formed in us for the glory of your name and for the advance of your kingdom. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come, that you would return, and that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father and that that your church would be vindicated fully and finally for all eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.